Warning! Today's story is rated PG, but it does contain non-explicit sex and a somewhat natural look at relationships. Escape Pod 79 November 9th, 2006 Today's story, Mountain Man, by Heather Shaw Hello, and welcome to Escape Pod. I'm Steve Ely, and this is Geek Dad intro number five, I think. Some people have been asking for these. If you don't care about Steve Ely's personal life, you can jump forward about three minutes. So, our son, Alex, is 19 months old now. The point where we're trying to make the difficult transition of not calling him a baby and calling him a toddler instead. He is walking all over the place now. He has been for a while and climbing up and down stairs and grabbing my computer mouse whenever I try to get any work done. He's a happy kid. But what he hasn't been doing is talking. He makes plenty of noises in his crazy moon language, to quote my favorite superhero, but by all the usual guideposts, a kid his age ought to have at least a few words down, and he isn't really using any. The pediatrician at our last checkup referred us to the state program for early development. And they did an evaluation on him last week and determined that he does qualify as having special needs for communication and some cognitive skills. He's going to get a couple of therapists for different things. This caused us some stress. Now, I'm not trying to play this up as a major life disaster, and I'm not angling for sympathy here. I know that there are a lot of kids far worse off than this, And the fact that Alex is physically healthy and interacts with the world at all makes us, in many eyes, very lucky. He's mostly doing just fine, and it could just be he's biding his time, and next week he'll be belting out soliloquies. But the officialness of the whole state program thing is kind of a downer, and it's really the first confrontation we've had with parental reality check. You know what I mean. Babies before they socialize have such infinite possibility that you just know they're geniuses and will excel at everything. And when they turn out not to be completely perfect, there's something, some innocence on the parent's part that gets broken. And you start wondering, what did I do wrong? Should I have read to him more, fed him different food, played different games? And if you let it, that kind of stuff can really eat you up. When I started writing this intro, I had some vague plans to tie this as a metaphor for our perceptions of the future, maybe go back to the singularity topic again. But you know, that's not the direction that feels right to me here. Not everything is science fiction. Yeah, you've got to think about the future, but not at the expense of living in the now. Now is harder to think about, because it's always full of flaws and complications, and the future is always shiny and perfect. The difference, the terminator between them, can be really sharp-edged sometimes. And you can let that stress you out, or you can just deal with what you have and enjoy the rest of it. That's what Anna and I are working on. Have fun is an easy motto to say. It's not always easy to live by. But I think one of the most important ways to keep a family healthy is to help each other have fun when it's hard. And in that sense, talking or not, Alex is at least really fun to watch. So, let's get to this week's story, a magical realism piece with a bittersweet flavor. We present Mountain Man by Heather Shaw. Miss Shaw is a celebrated short fiction writer who's appeared here before with her Flash story, Wedding the Bed, and her story, Single White Farmhouse, which was also reprinted in this year's Year's Best Fantasy Anthology. 
She lives in California with her husband, Tim Pratt, who's also been heard on our waveforms. This particular story appeared in the annual Rabid Transit chapbook, Long Voyages, Great Lies, in May of 2006. So, go outside and get some fresh air. It's story time. Mountain Man by Heather Shaw John Tucker found her while he was out hunting, mistook her for a deer, and shot her. This embarrassed him whenever he thought back on it later, both that he shot her and that he hid the girl in her leg, bringing her down but not killing her outright. John had always prided himself on making a kill with the first shot when he was hunting. He thought it was just a waste of bullets to wound first, though occasionally he'd admit to himself that he also thought it was kinder to kill on the first shot. It caused less suffering that way. Her hair was brindled like a tabby cat's, but longer, and it was black at the roots, honey-brown in the middle, and bright red at the tips. John had had trouble with some rainbow folk camping up on his land about five years back, and some of them had funny-colored hair, so when he saw this girl's, he assumed he'd shot a hippie. He thought for just a minute about putting a tourniquet on the leg and leaving her, but when he saw her face, he couldn't leave her to suffer until her rainbow friends caught up with her. She cringed away from him as he came nearer, and when old John looked into her wide gold eyes, he got his first inkling she wasn't just some hippie girl lost in the woods. Her features were unnaturally sharp, her nose and mouth jutting out just enough to suggest a muzzle. Her high cheekbones ran right up under her wide-set eyes. She stared at him without blinking when he spoke softly to her. How badly are you hurt? When she didn't answer, he crouched down and tied his bandana above the wound to stop her from bleeding to death and picked her up. Several dozen tiny gray tree frogs leapt away from the spot where she'd been sitting as he carried her off. She was heavier than she looked, as she was a tiny, slender thing. She looked bony, but he felt her strong muscles under her skin as he held her in his arms and staggered back to his cabin. Now, it wasn't as if John didn't think at the time that he should maybe call the authorities, have them come and take the girl to the hospital, let social services take over if her family couldn't be found right away. But by the time he got home, he was already half in love with her. See, John had lived on his mountain, alone, for going on fifteen years, and it wasn't often he even had company, let alone a woman. He mostly preferred it that way. He'd done his time in society, teaching English to ungrateful high school students in the small city near the foot of the mountain. But looking down at the lovely woman he held in his arms stirred things in John he hadn't thought about since his wife died two decades ago. Even as he carried her, he was wrestling with what was the morally right thing to do. But deep down, he'd already made up his mind that she was the woman he was going to marry. If she would have him, that is. By the time he got back to his cabin, there seemed to be a storm brewing, so John didn't feel bad about doctoring her himself. His old dog, Daisy, didn't even bark at the stranger as they went past her doghouse, which was a bit odd, but John decided it was probably because he was carrying her. He went inside and laid the woman down in his bed, a narrow thing he'd built himself while building the cabin. The mattress was old, and the girl nearly disappeared into the indentation left by years of his big body sleeping in it every night. He covered her with a quilt his wife had made him, and went to start the fire so he could heat up some water. She stayed awake all throughout the ordeal of him sharpening and sterilizing a knife and using it to dig the bullet out of her calf. She flinched, 
but didn't cry out as the bullet came free, trailing long strands of dry grass that must have somehow been lodged in behind the bullet. He stared at the bullet a moment, full of shame at what he'd done, then finished dressing the wound. "'You can stay here while you heal,' he told her. When she didn't answer, he added, "'You must be hungry. I'll make us something to eat.' He blushed a bit just talking about her staying over, so he turned quickly away from her bed and set about fixing dinner. When the goulash was ready, he propped her up in the bed and spoon-fed it to her a little at a time. He started to go about it serious-like, but the way the girl eyed the spoon, like a bird watching the ground after a rainstorm, soon made it into a game. Before he knew it, John was moving the spoon back and forth, grinning as the girl tracked it by tilting her head. Each time, she snapped the bit of food off the spoon well before he'd intended to feed it to her, making him laugh. She would watch him laugh, wide-eyed, while she licked her lips. Then she'd smile and turn her whole head pointedly towards the bowl, wanting more. John couldn't remember the last time he'd laughed so much in one evening. She still hadn't said a word when it was time to go to bed. The next morning, John discovered the fleas. He'd been sleeping on the rug in front of the fire, leaving the woman to the bed, and he woke up scratching. At first, he assumed he must have stumbled into a patch of poison ivy while he was distracted by the woman, but closer examination revealed tiny bite marks instead of a rash. It was already too late in the year for fleas, so until he saw one jump, he had no idea what was biting him. John sat up, jostling the young woman, who had curled up behind him during the night, her head resting on his side. She rolled onto her back and wiggled as she stretched, one leg bending at the knee, the other extended fully, her arms curled up around her face. She yawned, so long and wide that old John found himself yawning as he said, "'What are you doing down here?' She rolled over on her hands and knees and nuzzled him like a puppy. John was charmed until he spied the critters crawling thick along her scalp. He yelped and pushed her away, startling her and making her scamper back to the bed, dragging her bandaged leg a bit, but not as much as John thought she should have been. The bullet had gone deep. She was whimpering as he approached her on the bed. Hey now, sorry about that. It's just, you're infested. He coaxed her back out into the room, and she let him paw through her hair, his fingers shaking nervously as he parted the long, tangled strands. John was no stranger to bugs, especially not after all those years up on that mountain, but he was still surprised at the quantity and variety he found in her hair. Fleas, lice, and deer ticks. He wasn't sure how she could have had such a bad infestation, especially this late in the year. He searched his cabinets until he found his cooking oil. He'd stocked up for the winter already, but he should be able to hike back down to town and buy some more oil before the first big snow. The important thing was to rid her of her pests before they got into everything. He had her bend over the sink while he poured the oil over her head, his thick fingers clumsily working the smothering liquid down into the roots of her hair. He did the top of her head first, then worked his way back slowly to the thick, tangled mass at the back. It was hard going, and John finally gave up trying. Look, miss, I'm going to have to cut your hair to do this. Is that all right? She smiled at him from her upside-down, bent-over position, so he took that as a yes. He found an old pair of garden shears and took a hunk of her hair, gathered it into a rough ponytail, and hacked it off. A pair of mountain bluebirds flew out from where the nest of hair had been. 
John staggered back, dumbfounded by the birds flying around a small cabin. Already they were pulling out stuffing from his pillow and making a new nest in his rafters. Forgetting the girl for a moment, he grabbed his fishing net and collected the birds so he could set them free outside. When he was done, he returned to the girl, who was still bent patiently over the sink. He shook his head in disbelief, but didn't say anything as he went back to work on the mess of her hair. He uprooted what appeared to be the start of some strange bush, complete with berries, and he thought this might have been what attracted birds to nest in her hair. He recalled how, as a child, he would listen to his uncle's stories about how his aunt once had a nest of mice take up residence in her beehive hairdo because she'd had it for so long without washing. He had always assumed that he was just teasing, but now he wondered. He pulled apart another chunk of hair, loosened somewhat by the cutting, and nearly fell over when a small yellow-bellied marmot stuck her head out and trilled in his face. The small mammal extracted herself from the nest of hair and climbed up to a high rafter. John decided he'd done enough exploring for one day and worked the rest of the oil into the girl's hair without really looking. He thought he felt beetles, worms, leaves, and something wet and slimy and scaly. He was glad when the bottle was empty. "'Well, miss,' he said, "'usually I'd say the oil would smother whatever you have.' But you seem to be infested with all sorts of wildlife, so I don't know. The marmot whistled and climbed down from the rafters. John managed to shoo it out the front door with a broom. He closed the door, shook his head, and wrapped an old towel over the girl's head and helped her stand up straight. Might have to buy another bottle and try again in a few days. The girl smiled at him and kissed his cheek. Oh, you're welcome, miss, John said. The next morning, the girl woke up sick. She was moaning and clutching at her stomach, and her breathing sounded stuffed up. John offered her his handkerchief, but she only admired it and handed it back to him. He demonstrated its use for her and handed it back, gesturing that she should give it a try. She held the handkerchief up in front of her nose and blew delicately. Dozens of blue and yellow butterflies flew out from behind the handkerchief, fluttering around her in a small yellow whirlwind, giving her a moving gold and cobalt aura for a moment before they headed for a window above the sink and escaped. John was beginning to wonder if he'd been getting enough sleep at night. She handed back the handkerchief and kissed his cheek again. As he was stuffing it back into his pocket, John noticed a bright green caterpillar crawling along the edge. He flicked it out the window, trying to pass it off as something that had crawled into his cabin, despite the fact that it was late autumn and not the time for caterpillars. A storm had picked up outside, and dry leaves swirled about in the yard, making old Daisy bark and run to the door to be let in. It looked like it was going to be a doozy, so John let her in. It didn't seem fair to keep her outside, considering all the wildlife that had been through his home lately. Old Daisy didn't like strangers much, which made her an excellent watchdog even in her twilight years. As soon as she came through the door, Daisy spotted the girl and immediately began circling and sniffing her. The girl smiled delightedly and lay down so the dog could sniff her all over. Soon the two were playing, laughing and barking as they rolled about on the floor together. John, who took this as a good sign, smiled and shook his head, turning away to finish making breakfast. The girl was a charmer, that was for sure. The dog was too old even to go hunting with him, and she had her playing like a puppy. He looked out the window and could see that the storm was moving off down the mountain. It looked kind of like a funnel cloud which you just didn't see up here, away from any sort of flat country. 
The door to his cabin flew open, and he looked over to see the last bit of his dog's tail heading out the door. The girl must have let the dog out and gone with her. He looked out the window to watch where they went, but all he could see was Daisy and another strange dog he'd never seen before. The two were barking and jumping and running around each other in delight. He enjoyed seeing Daisy act like such a puppy, and he lost himself in watching her for a moment before he wondered where the girl had gone. He checked the cabin, but she wasn't there. He hurried outside to check and was surprised when he found her right away, laughing and playing with the dog. The other strange dog was nowhere to be seen. The girl ran up to John and threw her arms around him and kissed his cheek again. When she looked into his face and laughed, he felt dizzy, as if sunlight was being reflected into his eyes. When he looked down into her eyes, he experienced vertigo. It was just like standing on the edge of a tall, steep cliff and looking down. The girl kissed him again, this time on the mouth. Her breath smelled like fresh-mown grass, then like the woods after a warm rain. He was clumsy as he kissed her back, but he remembered about using his tongue and did so. He could feel his long, dormant body waking up in the arms of this wild, earthy girl woman and let his kisses grow deeper in his excitement. It was right about then that something bit him. He yelped and pushed the girl away. A snake, about a yard long with a distinct stripe down its back, was slithering down her arm, round and round like a dull bracelet, before it dropped to the ground and moved away. He made note of the snake. It seemed to be a western terrestrial garter snake, which wasn't poisonous. He examined his arm. The bite wasn't deep, but he washed it out and poured rubbing alcohol on it and bandaged it anyway. The girl was standing in the doorway of his cabin when he looked up, one hand to her mouth, crying silently. She looked so sad. John moved towards her, saying, Oh, don't cry, honey. I'm okay. When he got closer to her, he noticed that her tears weren't clear. Small fish were pouring out of her eyes, along with lily pads. A tiny turtle, no bigger than a pinhead, welled up in the corner of her eye and plopped to the floor. John comforted her, trying to get her to stop crying before something bigger came out of her eyes. He wasn't sure what was going on here, but it was clear that this girl's infestations went beyond the usual pests. He decided that the next day he would get something stronger to help try and cure the girl. The sulfur smelled so bad that he dipped her in it outside. He didn't want the smell in his house. He'd bought plenty of the nasty stuff, and he stood her in a dead spot in the yard and poured gallon after gallon over her head, while she held her arms tightly over her eyes and shivered in the brisk November air. He even scrubbed some of it into the parts that pouring wouldn't reach. When he was done, the girl looked miserable, her short hair stuck up in messy wet tufts on her head, and her body streaked with dirt and smelly yellow sulfur. He gently pulled her hands away from her eyes. All done. That should cure most of what ails you, sweetheart. The girl clutched at her stomach and groaned, moss pouring out of her mouth. Then, to John's embarrassment, she squatted right there in the yard and proceeded to take a dump. John was just debating whether or not to introduce her to the outhouse, and subsequently realizing it had been two days and she hadn't needed it yet, when he realized that the ground underneath her was smoldering. The lava she'd expelled started rolling down the mountain, setting the dry woods alight. John expected it to spread, but all things considered, there wasn't much of it, and it only burned an unnaturally straight, five-foot-wide path down to the river. He looked in shock at the girl, who was crying again. 
This time it was tadpoles in a tangle of water skaters. She fell to her knees and vomited frost and hailstones, which sizzled in the lava. Hush now, John comforted her. I think the river stopped it, and the old path was too meandering for my tastes anyway. He kissed her forehead, and she smiled at him, radiant with joy that he was not angry with her. It was about that time that John decided he could live with the fleas, and to stop trying to cure her of them. It seemed to be for the best. After a few days of no treatments, the fleas were back, thick as they'd been when he first met her, but there were no more butterfly sneezes or lava diarrhea. The next few weeks were some of the happiest in John's long life. They slept curled together on the hearth rug every night, as the bed was too small, and she seemed to prefer to be near the warmth of the fire. To his surprise, he never felt stiff or sore when he woke from his curled position on the thin rug. In fact, John was feeling as spry as he'd been when he'd first moved up here, all those years ago. One night, he decided to read to her. Curled up together by the fire, he read her his favorite Edgar Allan Poe story, which always seemed to go well with dark, late autumn nights. The young woman seemed appropriately spooked by the story, biting her nails and cringing in all the appropriate places. As he read the part where one character got walled up, she gave a small yelp and curled into a little ball, as if she could imagine nothing worse than dark confinement forever. As her body shook, thunder cracked outside. For a moment the room lit up bright as day from a flash of lightning that appeared to strike just down the mountain. John stared at the girl, looked down at the book in his hands, then decided not to finish it. He spent all night soothing her. The rain was gone by morning. It took him a few days to notice that it was getting warmer, not colder, outside. One day he woke up from his happy days and realized he needed to chop some more firewood, and when he went outside, spring was in full bloom. His clearing was full to bursting with thick, soft grass, flowering elderberry, twinberry, aspen, snow lilies, columbine, pasque flower, alpine forget-me-not, and pussy willow. The heady scent of the flowers floated on the warm breeze. Pretty birds sang and hummingbirds flitted about his garden, and foxes, jackrabbits, and squirrels scurried past as he stood staring in disbelief. It's like a goddamn Disney movie out there, John said to himself. The girl appeared behind him in the doorway, and she sighed like a summer breeze and skipped out into the lush yard, falling to the ground and rolling in the thick grass. She sat up and smiled at John with such love, he couldn't help but smile and come back to her. Did you do this, Missy? He fell to his knees beside her, and his joints didn't even crackle or pop. He leaned down and kissed her full on the mouth. She smelled like gardenias. There, in a bed of white mountain candy tuft on the floor of their own little Eden, John made love to the girl as if he were a young man again. She was like a scarlet globe mallow or a Caribbean seashell, all deep coral, buttery warm and silky smooth at the same time. Afterwards, he felt a bit troubled. Looking down the mountain, he could see that paradise didn't reach all the way to the bottom. Just past the river, it appeared to be summer, but beyond that the earth became brown and dry-looking, until, at the limit of his vision, all he could see was a shimmering, dusty haze in the distance. He couldn't see the skyscrapers of his old city the way he used to be able to on clear days. John didn't do anything right away. He told himself that he'd left the world down there years ago anyway, and that it was no business of his what happened to the people there. 
He made love to his girl again, trying to lose himself in the happiness of their still new love. But he couldn't stop staring down the mountain. He saw ash in the air and more tornadoes moving up the steep bank of the next mountain across the valley. It was just wrong, unnatural. He felt cold when he looked out of his little Eden, despite the pleasant weather surrounding him. One morning, when he couldn't sleep, John decided to go for a long overdue walk to town. He took the path that swung by his neighbor's house, a good twenty-minute walk away. The weather was warm, sunny and bright and glorious, until he took the footbridge over the river. There the weather grew warmer, almost muggy despite the altitude. By the time he got to his neighbor's property, the sun beat down on him so hard his skin burned. He sat down on a log to rest, shaded his eyes, and saw that where his neighbor's cabin had been, there was nothing but a black patch of charred ground. He remembered the spectacular lightning the night he had read the girl Poe, and how he hadn't even thought to check on his neighbor. He swallowed hard, uncomfortable in his skin for the first time in months. He stood up, his knees protesting with a sound like twigs snapping, and walked on. He kept walking until he got into town. Well, what was left of it. It hadn't been that big of a place to begin with, but now more than half of it was covered under a mudslide. The general store was still there, being the furthest distance from where the mud hit, and John went over to it. Cold relief washed over John when he saw his neighbor sitting on the porch. He scowled when he saw John approaching. Where the hell have you been, man? We thought you'd died. Oh, I've been up in my cabin. His neighbor narrowed his eyes. The river didn't wash out? We tried to get a rescue team to your place, but every time we tried, the river flooded so high it wasn't safe to cross. Figured you for a goner. Funny. You seem all right. John felt sweat beat up on his forehead, and the sinking weight of guilt made him nauseated. Uh, well, I couldn't get down here because of the river, Ben. Yeah? How's the river today? Uh, I made it across. Because I heard it's still raging up there. Certainly seems that way, looking at it down here at the foot. You telling me you crossed the river when it was overflowing its banks? John shook his head, decided it was best to stop trying to explain that. Good to see you alive and well, Ben. His neighbor chuckled. It was not a kindly sound. Damn close thing, me being alive at all. Some scientists come to visit up at my place, but lightning hit, and it nearly burned to the ground with us in it. It caught so fast. Most folks are moving off, but me, I can't afford it. I built that place with my own hands. My kids were born in that house, and it's just gone. I'm too old to rebuild it myself, too damn poor to hire someone, not that there's many around willing to work on the mountain these days. Everyone around here has lost pretty much everything. Ben's eyes got that shiny look that made John look away. While Ben covered his embarrassment with a coughing fit, John slipped past him into the store to buy some supplies. Things were pretty picked over, though the owner said it was mostly because supply trucks weren't willing to make the drive anymore. As he left, his neighbor stopped him on the porch. His shotgun now lay across his lap. John, just a word of advice before you go. You might think about moving off yourself. You seem to be real lucky so far, but it can't be too long before this madness makes its way up to where you are, and you being up there by yourself, well, it just ain't safe. Something bad might happen to you, with things crazy like they've been lately. I don't see why you should be spared when everyone else has suffered. 
Do you? He gripped the shotgun, staring intently at John. John nodded, thanked him, and left. As he made his way up the mountain, he thought on things so deep he hardly noticed the exercise. He crossed the footbridge by late afternoon, emerging into the warm, glorious springtime he'd been living in for the past month or so. The beautiful young woman was rolling in the flower bed where they'd first made love. She saw him approach and smiled at him. She didn't look sick to him. She looked like she was in love, like she'd forgotten about everything but the one she was in love with, which was him. He'd made up his mind on the way up the mountain, but the walk had seemed too short, and now, looking at the sweet young woman who made him laugh like a teenager, he could feel that surety slipping away. Wasn't anybody's fault, really, but now that he knew the consequences, John swallowed hard. He picked up the lovely girl and brought her out to the edge of the woods, right about where spring met summer. She closed her eyes as he laid her down among the flowers, and he dug down beneath the grass, rubbing dirt all over her body. He pulled up some plants and stuffed them in her mouth. She chewed them and swallowed and opened her eyes to look at him. This time, those eyes looked as clear and still as a cold mountain pool, and no more human. She stretched out her fingers and planted them into the earth. Bark grew up from where she touched the ground, making her arms look like tree roots. He bent to kiss her lips one last time. Snow fell from her head like bad dandruff. It began to cover the ground, shriveling the flowers and frosting the tree trunks. John, not dressed for the cold, shivered as the cold set into his bones. Her hair grew, budding bright green, then getting darker and turning autumn colors, and tangling up in the back again. Wings blurred John's vision, bird feet scratching at his face, and he threw his forearm across his eyes in self-defense. The bluebirds had returned. His head began to itch as fleas, ticks, and other insects flocked to her, swarming over him before crawling in by her neck. The marmot nipped him on the leg before he climbed onto her shoulder. He opened his eyes carefully, keeping a hand up to shield him from other animal attacks. She was glaring at him, heartbroken. He felt the mountain shift under his feet, in time with her sobs. John felt like he should be crying, too but he was too preoccupied with the vines growing over his feet, pulling at his legs as if they meant to take him down. He realized they were poison oak. He'd have one hell of a rash later. She opened her mouth as if to speak, and a low rumble like thunder, like earthquakes, like boulders falling, shook him. A snake slithered out fast up his body before he could react, and hissed in his face. He almost lost his footing at that, but managed to stay upright, the plants were more aggressive now, sticker plants growing right out of his socks, branches growing up his pant legs. Then he heard Daisy barking, running down towards him. He turned to tell her to go back, and he stumbled, fell into the nest of vines, stickers, and snakes at his feet. Daisy paid him no mind, leaping over him to the woman, who held out her arms to welcome the dog as Daisy eagerly licked her face. Vines grew up over woman and dog, covering them. John struggled with the snakes, vines, and sticker bushes, stuck and helpless as the woman, the mountain, took the old dog back to the earth with her. The sun was gone when he woke up, though he felt warmer than before. It took him a minute to realize it had snowed over him as he'd sat against the tree, the snow forming an insulating blanket up to his chest to keep him warm. A last kindness. 
He struggled to stand up, his old joints aching and creaking loud as twigs snapping in the bitter cold, so he could make his way back to his solitary cabin up by the tree line, alone. He didn't know if he could stay there, any more than he'd been able to stay in his old house after his wife died. Too many memories. Maybe it was time now to come down off the mountain. And that was our story. I guess it's an inverse to, if you love something, let it go. Sometimes, if you love something, you need to let it stay where it is. I'm going to drift another week on the story feedback. There is a method to my madness with this. Meanwhile, I want to drop a quick line about something else that people have been asking about. For those of you who have been keeping track, Escape Pod just hit its 18-month anniversary last week with episode 78. Yeah, I wasn't keeping track either, or I'd have said something then. So, happy 1.5th birthday to us. One of the most common questions we get from people is, how can I go back and listen to old episodes? They fall off the feed so quickly. Well, of course, you can go and download them all off our website, though it's a little tedious to do that with scores of files. Some fans have also put up archive feeds and BitTorrent compilations, and yes, we will be up on patiobooks.com soon. But here's one more way. Last year, about this time, we announced an archive CD with the first six months of our podcast on it. This was a special gift to our donors. We labeled it Escape Pod Collection 1, and if you got one, you probably noticed they were made by hand, and it took a long time to get them all produced and sent. Some didn't make it out by Christmas when they were supposed to. Good idea, flawed process. And a lot of people have been asking, where's Collection 2? And at least one astute person has said, hey, shouldn't Collection 3 be out now? Well, yes. And it's taken us a while to set this up, but we finally have a way to do it right this time. We'll be releasing all three CDs, each with six months of Escape Pod, with a better duplication process and full-color labels. And rather than going through a roundabout PayPal donation process, we're setting up a real shopping cart so you can just buy them. If any of you are thinking Christmas gifts, it's a great way to give someone a lot of hours of great fiction and support us at the same time. We've almost got the whole thing set up. I'm just finishing a couple of details so we can take credit cards. The site should be up next week. I'll do a text post on the escapepod.org site when it's available, and of course I'll mention it here. If you want to know more, email me. And if you just can't wait to give us money, here's one more tip. Everyone who donated $20 or more in the past year or who donates through the rest of this year, is going to get a coupon code. And anyone who subscribes to us on the $5 a month plan will be eligible for all of our collection CDs, now and in the future, with no shipping costs. Our subscribers make a huge difference to us. We plan to introduce some more bonuses for you in the future. Free CDs just seem like a good place to start. So, stay tuned for that. Meanwhile, Escape Pod is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Yes, that means that after I just told you about all our great CDs, you don't have to buy them. You can share us for free. You just can't change us and you can't sell us. We can sell us. I'd call that fair. Also check out Pseudopod at pseudopod.org for the best in audio horror. Our music is by permission of Dai Kaiju. Oh, by the way... We're also going to sell Daikaiju CDs. Specifically, the one that's out of print now that includes the tracks we play on this podcast. Escape Artists is bringing it back into print. Do we rock? Yes, we rock.
That was our show for this week. Our closing quote comes from Friedrich Nietzsche, who said, In the mountains, the shortest way is from peak to peak, but for that, you must have long legs. We'll see you next week. Meanwhile, I hope you all have fun. <laughs>